Hello, and welcome to the 10th episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Anne Wand. On today's show, we'll be talking with PhD student, novelist, and live literature curator, Ellen Wiles, author of The Invisible Crowd, Dr. Kayla Rush, adjunct instructor of sociology at Clark State Community College in Springfield, Ohio, and Dr. Alfonso Del Percio, lecturer at the Institute of Education at University College London. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. As per usual, we'll start off by having you tell us what drink you're having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself. Uh, Kayla, would you like to start? Uh, Yes, I'm having uh, tea with milk because it's 9 a.m. here in Ohio. Um, I am a recent Reeve transplant to the U.S. I studied in Belfast at Queens for five years and cur- um, got my degree in social anthropology and currently teach uh, sociology at a local community college. I'm also general editor of the Irish Journal of Anthropology and trying to write a book, um, which sometimes works well and sometimes not. No small tasks, so I hear. Uh, Ellen, would you like to uh, tell us a bit about yourself? Hi, yes. Uh, so I'm a novelist and my first novel, The Invisible Crowd, has been read as a work of ethnography, but has mostly been read just as a novel. Um, I'm also the author of Saffron Shadows and Savage Scripts, Literary Life in Myanmar Under Censorship and then Transition, which is um, ethnographic too in its way. Um, and yeah, I've just submitted my PhD, which is on live literature and cultural value and it uses experiential literary ethnography to explore the experiences of participants in live literature events by which I mean events like literary festivals and salons where fiction is performed live to audiences um, and explores how creative writing techniques uh, can help to reveal better how participants experience and value um, those events. So yeah, my background, I used to be a barrister and I'm now focusing on writing and academia. Fantastic. And what drink are you having? A green tea. Green tea. Excellent. And Alfonso, could you tell us about yourself, please? Ah, yes, of course. Um, I would like some white wine and Pinot Grigio. Ooh, okay. Very nice. Yeah. So, yes, I am um, um, a sociolinguist um, teaching at UCL Institute of Education, where I... Yeah, I'm teaching on questions of language and inequality, um, as well as language and politics. I've done research in Italy on on migration and and labor. And currently I'm editing uh, or co-editing a a journal called Language, Culture and Society. And I'm writing my book, but this will take a bit of time. I'm sure. Uh, I think what I will do, just to sort of get the questions going, because I know all three of you had some very different approaches to how to address ethnography as creative writing. So what I do is I thought for the first time, uh, since it's the 10th episode, I might start off with a bit of a personal story, and then we can kind of uh, go from there. So what I'd like to do is start off with a an experience I had some time ago in order to get some discussions going in terms of issues we might have with ethnography in other fields. A couple of years ago, I submitted an assignment for peer review and made the distinct choice to write this piece ethnographically. It was very visual, had pictures, and it had a personal narrative. But the reason I chose to write this piece in an anecdotal way is because I wanted to convey a story of how I came across my research topic in a unique part of the world. Interestingly, when I received my reviewer's responses, I was told by one reviewer that my work was very well written and quote-unquote catchy whereas another reviewer went so far as to tell me that I was naive and referred to my writing as trivial. Since then, I have submitted ethnographic pieces when working in interdisciplinary fields and have had similar wide-ranging responses. 
As a result, I thought I would start off by asking each of you how you have found other disciplines respond to ethnographic writing, either positively or negatively, within your chosen fields, starting with Kayla. So I'm, as I said, currently working in sociology, but my main work is in social anthropology. Um, I'm about to start a postdoc that will be ethnographic in, um, in nature, so I can't say that I'm working incredibly interdisciplinary. But what I've found is I've actually gotten a lot of opportunities out of being an ethnographer. So last year, I was asked to come in as a guest lecturer on an architecture course because they were very interested to start teaching architecture that is um, socially informed and informed by the neighborhood rather than just by architectural theory. So that was a very positive response because it was something that they felt was enriching their practice and that they needed. So that's kind of been my main interdisciplinary thing that I've done. I've worked some with my colleagues in cultural policy as well, where it's also been received pretty well, just because I, I worked in the same context for a number of years. I've pretty good knowledge of Northern Ireland's cultural policy, but it's been received more as, I guess, kind of in-depth expertise just from having dealt with it for so long. Um, yeah, I have to say I've been very fortunate in a lot of ways to have not had any negative interdisciplinary reactions to date, but that's one of the good and bad things about being an ECR is, you know, you're still, still working that out and you probably haven't encountered all of that in the way that some more experienced researchers might have. That's an interesting point. Um, Alfonso, I know you had had some complications. Could you tell us about your experience? Yes, yeah, so I, I, do, I do work at the intersection of language studies and, and, and anthropology. So I was trained both in sociolinguistics and, and um, linguistic anthropology, if you want. And depending on where you publish and to whom you talk, the reactions are mixed. And of course, I, I get a lot of feedback from reviewers and colleagues saying, yes, ethnographic, the way I write is kind of powerful. Uh, and it allows us to, to, to kind of document complexity and, 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 and as well um, affect and, and emotions. And in the same time, uh, I heard, not often, but it, it, it happened to me sometimes that um, Reviews would say, yeah, but this is anecdotal, okay, or where's theory, uh, or to what extent, um, you know, is this even science, right? So, and of course, um, these, fe these feedbacks are, of course, coming from very specific um, disciplinary histories and as well kind of disciplinary understandings of what academic language should be and shouldn't look about, uh, yeah. So, yeah, I have this kind of mixed reactions. Okay, what about you, Ellen? Yeah, um, so I work sort of at the intersection of uh, literature, creative writing and, and anthropology. Um, and to date, there hasn't really been that much overlap. And so that's something I've been trying to address in my live literature research. It's a, an area that's been pioneered by Helena Wolfe, among others. Um, and um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of potential for that there. And it's something that in terms of cultural value um, policy and, and theorising, there's been a recognition that ethnography um, has the capacity to address issues, just as Alfonso was mentioning, like um, the complexity of experience, including affective experience. Um, but it's as yet very underdeveloped. So it's something that I'm I'm working on currently and I think there's there's a lot of potential for um and um yeah in terms of my 
my experiences submitting my thesis that will be my book to, for, to peer review, I was actually actively asked to include an extra section on my autoethnographic experience of curating live literature events, as well as just writing about them ethnographically, incorporating my own perspective. So I think that there seems to be a movement, you know, there seems to be a, a, a shift towards, um, particularly, I mean, that's a, you know, that's for a series that's particularly inclined, I think, towards, um, towards such experimentation. But I think there is a gradual shift happening that 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 made clear to me. Um, and I've also been speaking recently about collaborating on something with a neuroscientist who's really interested in trying to work with ethnography and with these sorts of methods. So I, I feel quite optimistic about the possibilities for creative modes of writing ethnography. I think that's a really good thing to hear. I mean, I know, at least from my own experience, it hasn't, it hasn't turned out that way at all, quite frankly. But um, it's nice to hear that people within other disciplines are having more positive experiences um, but for those of us that are maybe having a more difficult time trying to justify the ways in which we choose to describe complex um, aspects of people's personalities, uh, lives, livelihoods, etc., um, would you say that ethnography, in some respects, is misunderstood? Um, so from my perspective, um, it's, it was interesting looking at, for example, how um, UK bodies that look at cultural value consider ethnography and um I think there, there's a widespread assumption that ethnography is perhaps the more traditional, um, a, a defined by the more traditional approach of um, being more scientific in its language and more structured in its organisation and less mm. you know, creative in, in terms of form and, and language. I think that's a widespread assumption about ethnography from those who are not closely involved mm. in it. But um, and, and I think it certainly does affect the way that it's it's perceived um okay <laughs> do you have similar reactions alfonso and kayla i i do think that there is both right so i agree with what has been said i think i i i do also observe a tendency towards more experimental writing and and a larger acceptance uh for for this type of work in the same time we face we still face old challenges in terms of how kind of to, to sell our work to the funding bodies and, and, and to convince people that the ethnographic work is, is, is valuable and allow us to get a really complex understanding of, of, of social life. So I do think that we still um, kind of have both, right? Uh, so there is this kind of in, interesting situation where we there is acceptance, but we still face kind of big challenges, I think. Okay. And Kayla? Um, I'll say, given my research, I think I've had a bit of an easier time with it. Um, I'm a arts researcher, primarily. Okay. And okay. ethnography is kind of having its moment in art in a lot of ways. Um, art critics have identified what they call an ethnographic turn in contemporary art. So ethnography is kind of hip in that respect. Um, but it's also a useful tool for artists to engage with the community. Um, my own research has been on community art, so I work with a lot of people who are essentially doing ethnography. Um, and within the UK, at least, um, policymakers have called for qualitative studies increasingly. The um, UK Cultural Value Project um, has sort of called for a use of qualitative study so I'm kind of working in my own ethnography with people who are familiar with ethnography, who do ethnography, though they may or may not call it that. 
and who find it valuable. So articulating it kind of within within my own field of study and research has been fairly straightforward because it's something that is having a moment, that's having a thing. Um, outside of that, I don't know that I have comment at this moment, but... Uh, I will say that is nice to hear in terms of this idea of an ethnographic term. I know within my discipline, that's not, we hear of a lot of turns in anthropology, but ethnographic turn, I think, is something that we, we would love to hear. Um, but I don't think it's it's necessarily something that we've heard yet. But, you know, again, I, I could be unaware and it could just be happening right underneath my nose. Uh, if we could transition on, <clears throat> Alfonso, you had mentioned that um, early career scholars in particular have noted that they like creative writing, and, and you had mentioned that in a previous email. But they raise the issue that many of them are not allowed to write creatively. It seems that there is a hierarchy in terms of who is allowed to produce ethnographic writing and who is not. Uh, could you please elaborate on this a bit? Yeah, so what we what, what I can observe is that, um, as, as everybody has already mentioned, right, um, so there are increasingly um, ethnographic methods entering um, the academic, academic field, not just in the, in the kind of usual suspects, uh, this discipline, anthropology, and ethnography, and other um, bordering disciplines, but in, in, in other kind of fields as well. Um, and, 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 and this is good, right? Um, so linking uh, ethnography, but as well art, other kind of creative methods, um, both in writing and, and, and data collection. In the same time, um, what, what I'm seeing and I'm hearing is that early career researchers um, feel vulnerable, and 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 some of, of 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 us, some of them, are kind of scared to take too much risk at a very early stage of their career, and are off and 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 fear that ethnographic writing may not always be seen as a form of authoritative writing, right? Uh, and, and therefore, uh, kind of struggle sometime, or, 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 or don't go as far as they would like in terms of um, introducing new ways of, of, of representing um, what they document. Interesting. Uh, Ellen, do you have any thoughts? Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, anecdotally, um, I taught an ethnographic fiction workshop last year at the American Anthropologist at the American Anthropological um, Association meeting, um, and it was it, it was attended by a wide range of scholars, from early career scholars to quite a few um, professors, who many of whom said finally that they got to the top of the ladder, they felt liberated to be able to try these techniques of creative writing, which they'd wanted to do for many years, but felt unable to do because of concerns about advancing their career and how seriously their work would be taken. So it, that really came across strongly to me as, um, as, as a feeling that, you know, there, there are a lot of anthropologists out there who are, who have been suppressing it in order to, you know, this kind of wish to experiment more with their writing in order to climb the ladder. Um, and I know that my own experience is, is unusual because I came to it via creative writing first. So I had that experience and perhaps it was then easier for me to um, to advocate for that um, as a methodology that I was using in my own work. Um, but I'm, I'm, it seemed from that that there was a lot of, um, of um, enthusiasm and, and kind of desire out there to use these methods, but that people were concerned about them not being taken seriously. 
And Kayla, any thoughts? Yeah, um, so part of my own practice is teaching uh, creative ethnography workshops as well. Um, it's primarily been on a smaller scale, uh, mostly at my own institution when I was at Queen's University. And I, I'll echo what Alfonso said. I think there's definitely an interest among early career scholars in it. Um, whenever I do this anywhere, it's mostly students or recent graduates who are attending. Um, so there is that interest, but there's some sort of block there where it isn't getting beyond the interest. Like the block seems to be in terms of finding somewhere to publish it or feeling comfortable publishing it. Um, from the one kind of week length course I led last year, which was attended by all students and I think two faculty members, the only one who's gone on to publish that work yet was the one faculty member. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we are seeing something there in terms of hierarchy, but very interestingly, the interest seems to be led from the bottom up, from kind of the early career angle. So I don't really know what to do with that, but uh, it does seem to be kind of a weird dilemma at the moment. That is a really interesting comment that you made. Um, in fact, there's a book that I was reading earlier this week. It's called The Ethnographic Self as Resource. Uh, it was published by Bergen Books in 2010. And there was a quote in there that really stuck with me that I thought would be pertinent to this discussion. Um, basically, one of, in the introduction, it states that it's unfortunate that ethnography has become a kind of reflex, or as I put it, a form of reflexivity, that is all too often confined to a preface or introduction as the new badge of ethnographic legitimacy. Uh, would you agree or disagree? I'm going to go with no hey, comment. No okay. comments, Alfonso? No comment either. Um, I need to think about it. Ellen? Um, yeah, I think um, my response would be that I think perhaps it's, it's possible that that, um, that has arisen out of a concern that unless a work, uh, an article or a piece of work contains what might be seen as more conventional, analytic, um, empirical style of ethnography or, or of you know, academic writing within it, it won't be seen as sufficiently rigorous and perhaps it derives from that that there's a sense that there's only so far that one can go with um more evocative writing perhaps um and uh yeah i think that that perhaps stems from a wider spread concern that you know any sort of creating writing techniques are in demonstrated an absence of rigor demonstrate a sort of absence of um um rigorous academic thought which um, I think is highly problematic and you know, there is, in my opinion, so much to be gained in terms of not just the accessibility of communication, but the content of what can be communicated by using other forms and modes of, of language. But I think there is um, also, you know, equally um, legitimacy to that concern in, in the sense that, um, you know, Creative writing is not just um, something I think people can just sit down and feel creative and do that, you know, actually that takes, it takes training and it takes practice and it, there is a rigor in it. And, um, and I think that, you know, there is a risk that people might sit down and, and write something, you know, that, that is, um, that may not be sufficiently um, uh, thought through and, and may not actually, you know, reveal what, what could be revealed by using creative writing techniques. So I think you know there, there's there is legitimate concern about um, um, a lack of 
a lack of rigor, but actually, um, uh, you know, if if proper attention is given to um, to the possibilities of creating writing and creative forms, and um, then those sorts of practices will become more widespread and could actually add significant value to the practice of ethnography. I think that's a very excellent answer. Um, and I guess maybe tying into that, Alfonso, uh, you had said that you felt like that there was creative writing could often be seen as non-theoretical. Could you tell us what you what you mean by that? Yeah, so there is this kind of weird assumption, right, that um, um, only a very kind of specialized technical um, language um, can can be used in order to talk about theory, right? And 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 that this more, if you want, poetic language or uh, that is is not there to do theory, right? Uh, so we have these kind of very old assumptions about how, about this very kind of simple and transparent language that allows us to to, to, to do theory. And I think that creative uh, writing and ethnography in general are in a way going against this assumption. And, and, and that creates struggles and tension. And I think it's our job to, um, to show that that ethnography is a very, very powerful tool to do theory. But then perhaps the question is that perhaps to do another type of theory. I don't know. But, but yes, I think that one of the main um, comments or feedback that ethnographers and, and creative writers especially get is, where is theory? So, it, so it's both, right? Where is this is not rigorous or it's not rigorous enough. Or, and then it's not, and it's certainly not theoretical. Mm. Um, Ellen, did you have anything to add? I'm aware of my research, you know, in, in the process of thinking about these issues, that there's an assumption that only by using what is essentially academic jargon can one convey that one has read all the relevant texts and understands the theory fully. But actually, you know, even outside of ethnography, some of the very best scholars have an ability to communicate very clearly and um, without necessarily using so much jargon. I think it's sort of, and it, it is an issue with within a, a broader issue within academia that there is um, this sort of sense that one needs to conform to a certain a mode of language in order to be taken seriously. Uh, well, I guess kind of, again, moving on from that, Alfonso, you had mentioned this idea of creative writing being a powerful tool. Between all three of you, would you agree that ethnography could be a powerful tool in academia and other disciplines? And if so, how would you convince other disciplines to view ethnography in that particular way, starting with Kayla? Um. Yes, I do agree that I think creative writing or ethnography in general is an incredibly valuable tool. Um, something that really has a chance to tell us something in a new way. Um, I often think of it as sort of an epistemological move because I think there's some things that it, you just can't communicate in, um, in jargon, essentially. Um, one thing I found, and one of the reasons I started turning to a more ethnographic, creative approach in my writing is I was working with um, artists who'd had their funding cut under austerity. 
Um, and it's just, it's really, really hard to, within the space of sort of standard academic jargon, even within anthropology, to communicate how devastating this is for them and to communicate how it makes them feel in a lot of ways. Like anything I tried to write in kind of a more standard academic way was very trite. It felt like I was either going a little bit too maudlin and like making it out to be more than it was or like I was somehow kind of belittling their very real, very, in many ways, traumatic experiences. Um, so for me, I think it's a way we can communicate things that we aren't communicating somehow or that aren't coming across um, in our literature as to how we convince people of that. I don't know. Like, I think I think stories are very powerful. I think our culture, at least in terms of kind of being Western people, knows that given sort of the way that certain books or certain films sort of capture our collective imagination. So we have this shared knowledge that stories are powerful and that they do something powerful. And I'm not entirely sure how we translate that to kind of the smaller scale of our own discipline and making value with other disciplines other than you know, really allowing the people we work with to speak and to, to share their stories and to share our stories. Yeah. I think that's just a really great point um, that Kayla made. And I think increasingly neuroscience has revealed how important um, story and narrative is for um, arriving at decisions and, and value judgments you know there's been this assumption throughout intellectual history for you know since the enlightenment really of the of um this idea of um pure rationalism and that you know, humans um, advanced humans are able to make these decisions on the basis of um abstract reasoning and actually we increasingly realize that that's not the case and ethnography particularly in a way ethnography that uses um evocative writing techniques that allow readers to connect with human experience in the world, you know, this idea of being in the world, um, and to link that with theory gives it this really unique power that um, that I think can allow all sorts of disciplines to communicate the value and meaning of their subjects um, uh, with more impact. Excellent. And Alfonso? Yeah, I, I agree with what has been said so far. So I, I, what I could add is perhaps that ethnography allows us to delinearize our accounts of society in a way and to make sense of, of the complexities, the doubts, um, the, 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 the affective dimension of, 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 social, of social life. Uh, um, and and this, can't, I, I don't, this can't be represented by, um, by kind of the kind of academic uh, jargon that we are used uh, to read. Um, I do think that ethnography allows us to produce stories, as has been, uh, as was said, um, stories that allow us to get closer to what it means to be um, um, a human being under current conditions, uh, and 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 as well what it means to um, experience um, uh, disrupting um, moments. Uh, and, and, and and forms of inequalities and transformations that that so many people at the moment are going through. And I think, yeah, so this is the kind of language that we need in order to make this visible and, 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 um, and, and, and sayable. I think those are all excellent points. 
Uh, and I think maybe just to kind of expand on that a bit um, in terms of practical application and using ethnography within your own lives. Alan, you currently work as a live literature researcher and you make the case for the value of creative writing techniques and ethnography, particularly in artistic contexts. Uh, could you explain, firstly, what is live literature? And then secondly, how you are able to do this within your work? Yeah, I mean, like, so interesting live literature it's got a huge potential scope from storytelling events to poetry events to um as i've described my research is focused on which is the um literary events that involve the performance of fiction like literary festivals salons and more performative events um but yeah i i think um in an arts context particularly so many um attempts to um interrogate the value of that experience, which have, you know, has significant implications for the funding and, and policy of relation to the arts, just misses the essential quality of that experience, which is fundamentally um, aesthetic and involves um, affective, sensory, embodied elements of experience that are just impossible to get at unless one uses um, evocative writing techniques that are phenomenological and that get to the heart of what that experience mean so that's what i've i've been trying to do through um a creative mode of writing ethnography about those events okay great and kayla you are actually working with ellen if i'm correct um ellen you are contributing towards a special issue that kayla you're working on with the irish journal of anthropology on creative ethnography using that to launch uh supposedly a section dedicated to creative ethnography in the journal you had mentioned, Kayla, that the call for contributions uh, received far more submissions than you expected, particularly for a very small regional journal. Why do you think that is? I, I think it's clearly something people were waiting for, you know, that they wanted the chance to do. I This is my very first issue as journal editor, um, and it's I was kind of worried it was a very niche special issue, and I kind of figured at the like on the deadline, I'd be trying to strong arm a couple of people I knew into submitting one or two things. And I think we ended up with over 40 submissions, which is an enormous number for the IJA, which is an incredibly small journal with fairly small readership. And we typically only print, I think, 200, 250 copies. So it's, you know, this is not really something we had anticipated um, or that I'd really anticipated having to then dig through all 40 plus uh, submissions. But that's a different issue. Uh, but yeah, like I think it, it struck a note for people who were just kind of waiting around for this opportunity. Um, I don't know of anyone who contributed or submitted who, um, not many, who kind of wrote things from scratch for it. Um, for the most part, people who were submitting were submitting pieces they'd already written and were just kind of sitting on and waiting for, or they tweaked pieces they'd already written or something like that. Um, we had maybe a couple months for the call for contributions, but it wasn't an enormous amount of time. Um, so I think these are kind of pieces that didn't really fit anywhere else and that people really want to put out there and they're good pieces. Um, small plug for the journal there. There are some really excellent contributions in there. Um, many really excellent contributions. Um, but yeah, I think it struck a chord and I think it's also interesting that despite being primarily an English language journal, we, technically published in Irish, but we obviously don't get a ton of Irish language contributions. Um, but for that, a lot of our contributors don't 
work in Anglophone contexts. Um, a lot of people speak English as their second, third, fourth language. Um, many of our researchers are working in institutions that don't use English as their primary mode of teaching or research. Um, so, you know, it of course speaks to kind of the, the hierarchy and the primacy of English in academia, which is a, a different issue. But I think also speaks to a sort of openness, like to an interest in this. And I've found when I teach courses on creative ethnography, more than 50% of my attendees are also speaking English as a second or third language. Um, so I think it's really interesting that it's kind of opened up this opportunity and that it's not, at least at this point, not feeling very exclusive, at least to the ECRs I've worked with um, in that respect. Um, but more to the point, I think clearly people want to be able to do this. And I don't think we have a lot of outlets for it at the moment. Um, so I think we we happen to hit on a good niche for us um, on something that people wanted to have space for and that we wanted to give space for. And that's a really good match. I think and I think that's so many contributions. I think that's wonderful. Cause Alfonso, one thing you had mentioned is that... Um, for you know those who don't speak English as a as their mother tongue, that uh, this particular type of writing style can be quite complicated. Um, how do you feel in terms of listening to what Kayla has said regarding her journal? Yeah, no, this is um, this kind of um, corresponds a bit to my understanding of, of, of where our fields are moving, um, and, and, and 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 yeah, and I see also this enthusiasm. Um, coming especially from young scholars um, for, for these writing techniques. In the same time, um, good, I'm a bit biased, right? Because this, this is what I'm interested in, so language and social inequality. So I do think that um, this type of writing, uh, as has already been mentioned, uh, requires from us uh, an additional investment in writing and in, in thinking about how we write. And I do think that for many of us who uh, don't speak uh, English as, uh, as the mother tongue, I think that this is an additional burden. And, um, and it doesn't facilitate um, the, the, the task. And it may even um, produce uh, more selection instead of kind of having kind of this transformative moment, right? Um, so even if I am, I am uh, I am really very much invested in this type of writing and, and encourage um, the students who work with me to engage in this too. I see the limits and, and I, in terms of who is, is seen as kind of a, a good writer, right? And, and especially since many of us are forced um, to, to write in a language that is not in a way their own, right? Uh, English. Um, yeah, so that complicates a bit the task. Absolutely. And before we close, there's one more question that, Kayla, you had mentioned uh, in our correspondence earlier and how you'd mentioned that ethnographic creativity can function as a form of feminist praxis. Firstly, what do you mean by this? And uh, could you elaborate on it a bit? Uh, yes, of course. Um, so this is, uh, this is how I personally kind of teach and practice um, particularly creative ethnography, but ethnography in general is as sort of a feminist um, mode of sharing information. And I think we can apply this to some level to all of ethnography because ethnography kind of does away with the assumed maleness of the academic voice. 
Um, I think, yeah, I think often kind of we have to picture a faceless academic. They tend to be male. They tend to be white. Maybe not all the time, but ethnography, you can't really do that because your body is part of how you make knowledge in the field. Um, like I cannot be perceived as anything other than female and white in the field. And when I open my mouth, I can't be perceived as anything other than American. Um, and all these things about me sort of, they, they make my work. Even when I'm writing theory, they can't really be removed from my theory. And that's part of what ethnography is. So I, for me, kind of creative practice takes that to the next step because it incorporates your own voice and the power of your own voice. Um, I think that uh, earlier Alfonso was speaking about um, kind of theory versus ethnography and this idea that we can only write knowledge in very technical language and how it's a very old assumption, which I absolutely agree with. Um, and I think this sort of these norms around most academic writing can be very exclusionary in a lot of ways. You know, they can exclude students a lot of the time. Like, students can be very hesitant to get involved in these talks because of the language used. Um, they can exclude people from working class backgrounds, people based on kind of their mother tongue, as we were just talking about. And so I think some form of creative praxis can unsettle that and can really shake that up and give a chance for other voices to be heard. Um, so I, I personally use feminist kind of loosely there, but it's not just sort of upsetting kind of a male-dominated academy. It's about upsetting kind of like the, the ways we do academia. And I think this is a really great chance to do that, to bring in um, voices that are either silenced in the academy or are kind of forced into um, forced into a way of speaking. I often talk about um, academic writing as kind of an ill-fitting garment, and students and early career researchers are kind of given this task of, like, fitting themselves to the garment rather than the other way around. So for me, writing creatively is doing the opposite, is flipping that and saying, no, I don't have to change the shape of myself to fit this one particular way of writing. I'm going to fix the particular way of writing to myself. Um, so that's what I mean by it. Um, obviously, even when we write creatively, we're we're making alterations. We're making it to fit the academy. So the way I'm just presenting it is kind of a very idealized version of it. Um, but at the core, that's really why I get into this. This is what I try to impart to students. Um, when I write about it, this is what I try to write, is how this gives us an opportunity to kind of upend this sort of um, hierarchical, often patriarchal way that we've been doing writing for so long that can be very exclusive and to make it a space where we can kind of share that knowledge we've made in the field as embodied selves in a way that we can connect with other people. Excellent. So that's uh, my topic. Um, <laughs> no, I think it's, it's a really excellent way of putting it. Um, Ellen, uh, what do you, what do you have to say to that? Yeah, I think those are great points. I guess I'd want to give a shout out to Ruth Bihar as being an academic who really pioneered a lot of this way of thinking work with, um, co-editing women writing culture as a response to writing culture in the, the 80s and then the vulnerable observer in the 90s bringing you know a feminist perspective um, into um, the theorizing of ethnographic writing and how um, emotions need to be brought brought into it in order for um, anthropology and ethnography to really reflect experience so there's this um, there's a a, a whole um, fascinating background of, of scholars who've really been able to reveal how um, how 
ethnography and anthropology can become much more meaning through meaningful through reflexivity um, and therefore can you know have um, feminist uh, consequences among others for, for the academy and um, and much and can really open open the discipline of ethnography up to to more diverse voices and audiences. Excellent. And Alfonso, any last comments? Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I do think that ethnography has the potential to um, disrupt the kind of patriarchal foundations of, of, of academia. Um, it has the potential to put the body of the researcher um, at the center of knowledge production. <clears throat> it, has to say it has the potential to, um, to kind of um, uncover as well the, the kind of power that comes with you know speaking about the other so yes um, yes indeed um, it's a feminist endeavor um, uh, as, I, you know, as I, I was mentioning before it's a way of kind of de-rationalize in a way um, academia right so they kind of decenter this rational um, the, 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 this rational language and, 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 and to and to and to put other forms of speaking and of writing at the center of our academic um, knowledge production. So yes, indeed. Right. Well, that's it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Anne Wand. I'd like to thank again Alan Wiles, Dr. Kayla Rush, and Dr. Alfonso Del Percio for joining us at the studio this afternoon. For those of you who enjoyed the show, please feel free to explore our Facebook page at Coffee and Cocktails One, as well as our blog at coffeeandcocktails1.wordpress.com, where you can learn more about upcoming episodes. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.